1: Because ¿Dónde está el baño? can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Fast-track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop, to my phone, to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language, there's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, StarTalk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off, visit RosettaStone.com slash StarTalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at RosettaStone.com slash StarTalk today.
2: Welcome to StarTalk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. Welcome to Star Talk. I'm your host Neil DeGrasse Tyson. You're a personal astrophysicist. I'm also the director of New York City's Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History. This week, we're ringing in a new year and preparing to launch yet another season of Star Talk radio. But first, we'll say goodbye to 2016 and our seventh season. Yes. Seven season. And we'll do that with the first part of our annual time capsule show. Every year, we send out a survey to you, our fans, and ask you to vote for all your favorite episodes, your favorite guests, your favorite co hosts. Then we cut and splice to create this single mashup episode of the winning picks. 2016 saw our third season on the National Geographic Channel. And it would be StarTalk TV's second Emmy nomination. And every episode is an opportunity to reveal and expose the geek underbelly of the pop culture stars and influencers all around us. And it's what we do here on StarTalk. And with your help, we're able to select some of these best moments from our past season. First up, the lunar legacy with the living legend Buzz Aldrin. He was the lunar module pilot on Apollo 11, He landed on the moon with Neil Armstrong back in 1969. I remember that. That's how old I am. And he's the second man to walk on its surface. I interviewed Buzz inside my office here at the Hayden Planetarium. Co-host Eliza Schlesinger helped me out in the studio, along with science guest, the former astronaut Mike Massimino. Although, can you ever really be a former astronaut? Mike was also selected as one of your favorite guests of the season. Let's see what they had to say. Buzz
3: was the first to pee in space. You're, I think he was the first to pee on the moon. Pee on the moon? Yeah, because other guys peed in space. I think that's other
1: how vision. other I countries know a... that we were there.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I think it was the first. USA! Pee in, right? Yeah. Yeah. The like, first Yeah. I don't think they held it for the, you know for. Yeah, you can't hold <laughs> yeah. it for three days. No. Right? Or, I, no, I think no, that. two weeks. Um... No, you know, Jim Lovell was up there. I, I'm sure he peed. Okay. <laughs> Not that I thought I ever had, so, but I'm so, you know. He's the first to pee on the moon. Yeah, I think it was on the moon. On the moon. And you have a space first. I do. Yes. What is that? I was the first to tweet from space. To tweet from space? Yes. I was oh, wow. the first. Yeah, was Very first cool. To tweet from space. That's what do cool. you think of that? That's pretty great. Yeah. Not like walking on the moon. No. Maybe closer to
2: peeing. <laughs> what on was the, the moon.
4: tweet? Like, how does this it's, work? No, don't. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah.
2: Don't ask him. Because yeah. yeah. we'll be prone to compare it to one small step for <laughs> yeah. man, well, one grind, for mankind. That's
3: exactly what happened on Saturday Night Live. I, I, they made fun of me based on that quote. And all right, so what happened was I tweeted. Uh, Launch was awesome. <laughs> yep. the, the adv- uh, and I wanted, I wanted the people of Earth to know I was okay, so I said I'm feeling fine, right? And then I put I'll do it. the adventure of a lifetime has begun. So, this is, I, and, that's what and, you and wrote. this is yes, this is what I. T- <laughs> uh, all right, you know what? He, yeah, <laughs> I was in space. You know? <laughs> What's your favorite story that you
2: tell in here that you want the public to know? First guy. To pee in his pants on the moon. I was going to ask you about that because I have kids come up to me. How do the astronauts poop and pee? So, because I looked inside the command module of the Apollo command module, there's no restroom that you get up and go to. You know,
5: uh, Al- Alan Shepard's flight was going to be a pretty short one, so he was supposed to go out there, get in this Mercury, uh, first time, first American suborbital. And the launch countdown didn't quite go the way it was expected. It was delay, delay, delay. And Alan's lying on his back. Pretty soon it's getting pretty damp there. <laughs> and that's when they we we got to do something. We got to have a, a little bit better... Hydraulic engineering <laughs> into the spacesuit and the rest. Of it. So that what they call it? Hydraulic engineering. <laughs> the UCD, very important, urine collection device. Okay. And the UCD.
2: Somehow, uh, I thought those words would it, be bigger. It, it, it's it just it's, your, it's a pee over, collection device. That's it all gets it is. Dumped overboard and and it freezes.
5: Immediately. Instantly.
2: Yeah.
5: And there are flakes. But doesn't the P
2: flakes take... outside? Wait, wait, wait! The P is moving like... the same speed as your ship. Of course it would. Right. So if you put it outside, now the P is, is frozen. P is traveling alongside with you to the moon. Scott Carpenter saw a lot of those
5: uh, fireflies, and he was so fascinated with them that he wasn't quite lined up for retrofire. He, he, he got the cosine of it, which is, you know, enough. But there was a little bit of the sine of the angle that he's off. That's why he landed. Uh,
2: In the wrong place. Not where he was supposed to right. go. Right. But the fireflies are you telling me that was his pee?
5: Yeah,
2: it was a urine dub. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> the mysterious
5: fireflies. Well, <laughs> but, but there was a little hesitancy about people are getting their jewel too close to what was going to go to a vacuum. Like they might get sucked outside.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So we have to
3: ask, Mike. Yes.
2: uh, Have you ever peed in your pants in space?
3: Yes. We didn't call it the UCD, we called it the mag. The mag? The Maximum Absorbency Garment. Oh! (laughs) It was a diaper. Diaper! Diaper. Yes, we wore a diaper on uh, launch and entry and while spacewalking. And then when you're inside the spacecraft, you use the toilet.
2: Okay, so where does the pee go if you do it in the spacecraft?
3: In the spacecraft, it's collected and then dumped, as as he described, and you would want to see, the, the urine dump was cool. Because it it, you would dump it, and it would crystallize, and the sun would shine on it, and, and it was really beautiful. fun. It was, it was something... I can't believe i are having a conversation. Yeah. A beautiful frozen pea. Yeah. In- a urine dump. Yeah. Hey, everybody, it's a urine dump. I, I, this is, hey, it's a urine dump. And we, you know, before you hit the switch, I would go to the window and watch. <laughs> yes, that's it. So you're telling me your pea was orbiting the Earth? <laughs> Apparently, yes. I never thought of it that way, but yes, for a little bit, until it, crystallized, you know, it kind of disappeared. No,
2: then it would re-enter the atmosphere. Uh, yes. Well. Yes. Yes.
3: Okay. Yes. I peed peed on everybody. You, yes. peed, you peed on Earth. Yes, I guess oh so. my gosh.
2: Some of the most interesting and disputed scientific inquiry lies in the realm of artificial intelligence. Will machines develop a consciousness? Should humans be worried about it? I'm not really worried about it, uh, but maybe I should be. I interviewed futurist, author, and inventor Ray Kurzweil finally got to meet the guy just to tackle this discussion in the season seven premiere, Gazing into the Future. I was joined in studio by my comic co-host, Chuck Nice, and neuroscientist, Gary Marcus. Check it out. Well, okay, so whether it's AI taking over us or or we controlling AI for evil, nefarious purposes, uh, there' no doubt that there are existential threats that this technology can bring. And I asked Ray, of course, I have to ask Ray about this. Check it out.
6: Technology's been a double-edged sword ever since- It's ever been. Fire, I mean, fire kept us warm, but burned down our houses. And every technology can be used for creative and destructive purposes. We have an actually, a new technology that has an existential risk already, which is biotechnology. The existential risk from artificial intelligence or nanotechnology is off in the future. And we can debate, is it 10 years away or 50 years away, but it's not here yet. But the ability for someone to take a benign virus, like a cold virus, and turn it into a super weapon that make it more deadly, more communicable, more stealthy, exists right now. That could be done in a biotechnology lab probably a few blocks from here. So that was recognized actually 30 years ago and they had a conference called the Asilomar Conference to come up with guidelines, how can we keep this safe and reap the promise without the peril. And they came up with the Asilomar Guidelines. Those have been made more sophisticated over time. And they've worked very well. We're now reaping the benefits of biotechnology. The number of incidents, either intentional or accidental, that there's been harm from biotechnology so far is near zero. zero. It's zero. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean we can cross it off our worry list because the technology keeps getting more sophisticated. But nonetheless, it's actually a good model for how to keep these technologies safe. Well, plus, you know, when we
2: know that fire exists, and so we have fire codes, right? This is how you build a stairwell, and this is how you escape, and this
6: is how... And And we have a moral imperative to use fire or artificial intelligence or biotechnology to overcome the problems, you know, that humans have. There's still a lot of human suffering. And we're using AI to diagnose disease and come up with new cures and clean up the environment to reduce poverty. And we have a moral imperative to continue that way while we you know have ethical uh, guidelines to keep the technologies uh, as safe as possible uh, so
2: gary, you're 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 quite prolific on this topic in the popular media, even not only professionally. So one of your articles for The New Yorker decided why we should think about the threat of artificial intelligence so this sounds very
7: ladidic la- I'm, I'm no Luddite. Um, in fact, I, I'm just uh, launching an organization called AIforgood.org, um, which is about what positive outcomes we can get from AI. But there are also risks, too. And it's a trade-off, right? But we, are we, ethical guidelines enough
2: to just guide this? Because we we have ethical guidelines for everything else that could possibly kill us. Probably I, need regulation, too. I mean... Yeah, yeah, regulation. But but we do that. We don't say, let's not have airplanes because they could crash. We
7: have regulations to make them as safe as possible. And they still crash, but we accept that risk. So... That's right. And, and, and I mean, we do some kind of calculus to decide whether it's worth it, and it maybe that two hundred years from now, people look at us and like, why did they use cars before they had computers in them to make them safe? They mm-hmm. lost so many people, and so people may look back at us now and say the ways in which we handled AI in the you know in in twenty one fifty in the early days were really pretty poor. Um, and so I, I don't know what the regulations are going to be. It's probably going to be iterative. One of the things that I think we all worry about is that the pace could be fast, and we don't have enough time to take care of it. Do, but do you share the t- Total concern that the famous,
2: you know, trinity of Elon Musk, Bill Gates, and Stephen Hawking have shared?
7: No, I have a a milder view. I mean, I think that real strong AI is... Just to be clear, they're like, Freaking out,
1: right? They think that basically machines are going to take over and kill us all. Kill us all, right. and then the future
2: of the world is a machine, a world of machines, right. World of not- machines. Right, right.
1: I don't That's think it's right. <laughs> the
7: honest truth, ter- <laughs> the Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> the machines <laughs> are coming. <laughs> okay. The, the, the honest truth is that Skynet is not not going to be here. I have an Austrian <laughs> accent. <laughs> all the machines the machine. will have an Austrian <laughs> accent. Look at this. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I'm okay. sorry. Go ahead. I don't think. the the, the schwarzenegger version of it's going to be here anytime soon i don't think the computers care about us so far you get computers that are exponentially smarter at playing chess and they don't give a shit about us at all i don't know if i can say that on the air um but at the same time i still think we need to be worried as computers get more and more embedded in our lives they have more and more power to change things so they're going to start driving our cars for example and if the ai isn't right then there's a risk there when the critically acclaimed
2: film the martian hit the box office in 2015 It became what is perhaps the most scientifically accurate science fiction film ever made. And it was wildly successful. The film was, of course, based on the best-selling novel of the same name, written by Andy Weir. So I snagged Andy for an interview to talk with the man behind the phenomenon. And it's no surprise, this episode was voted as your number one favorite of season seven. I was joined in studio by NASA engineer Adam Steltzner, who led the entry, descent, and landing team of the Mars Curiosity rover. You might remember that um, Several Minutes of Hell video that went viral. Well, he was in charge of making that happen. Also, hear from first-time co-host Matt Kirschen. Check it out. Part of Mark Watney's survival was knowing where past sources of energy and rocket ships, and because we'd been to Mars before, Right. right, and so then
4: he so he's got to get around,
2: and so he's got a rover.
4: Yeah, he goes to the Ares IV uh, eventual landing site where they have sent. Because this was Ares three. He was on Ares three. Yeah. Ares four. They had already sent the Mars ascent vehicle, and it was sitting there making its fuel, and and all the pre supplies hadn't come yet, but they had sent the MAV. And so Mark. By the really... way, which is a completely sensible way.
2: To do future space exploration. Yes. Yeah, you just, just send down. supplies separately. No reason to risk lives doing that. Mm-hmm. And then you send astronauts later. And Once can... you've
4: confirmed that the supplies made it okay. Yes. And then yeah. they can then they can pitch tent and set up and play house. hmm Yes. Yeah. And so he realized that there's a spaceship capable of getting him into low Mars orbit, right there on Mars. He just needs to get to it. The bad news was it was 3,200 kilometers away. Right. So he had to take these rovers, which were really designed for a 20 kilometer range. Uh, before being recharged and drive thirty-two hundred kilometers, so it's quite a challenge.
2: Well, Adam, you you led a team, Curiosity, a car-sized yeah. rover, yeah. to move on the surface of Mars. Yeah. What would it take to drive that
0: thirty-two hundred kilometers? A very, very long time. <laughs> Actually. So it's true. She's only gone thirteen thousand nine hundred ninety-two. Um, meters in in uh, four years. See, he used meters, now the number sounds bigger, right?
2: You got that? A whopping 13,000... 000... Every guy knows that trick. But, but yeah, yeah, it's a trick. It's a trick. It's 13 kilometers. If you do it in miles, it's even less. It's like eight miles. Okay. But we're
0: not, unlike Mark Watney, we're not hitting the gas and trying to get somewhere. We are actually, well, frankly, sciencing the out of Mars along the way. Okay, because you're not in a hurry. We're not in a hurry, we're exploring. We're looking at the surface of Mars. We're learning about its history. We're learning about its ancient environment. We're searching for the possibility that it could have supported life. Okay. But but as evidence of how slow and how methodical and interested our science team is, we went to the Gale Crater for some clay minerals that we saw from orbit, um, signatures of clay minerals. Just so, clay is been... where there was water and deposits yes.
2: that settle, and
0: then you just... For, yeah, for like the, the bottom of yeah. a lake lake bed kind uh-huh. of feel. We still haven't got to that deposit that we saw in the entire time that we've been okay. on Mars, and yet we've been done a whole... Because you've been bit... busy. Because we've been busy. Because it's been stopping for pee breaks. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right, so so uh, let's back up for a minute, because your, your specialty was getting the thing there safely yes, sir. so that the scientists could do their job. And so... What I remember from Spirit and Opportunity, the previous previous round of this, they had like airbags. Yeah. So the thing comes down and airbags deploy and it bounces until it stops. Now you have Curiosity, Mm because those were the size of like microwave ovens, let's say. Yes. Okay, so Curiosity is the size of a car.
0: Yeah. And why not use airbags again? So there are no fibers known to humankind from which we can make a fabric, from which you can make a bag that could handle the loads of that car-like Rover in the surface of Mars okay so now actually you use what I'm told is called a sky crane yes this sounds complicated what what is that it's like Set. a jetpack it's like a jetpack the the rover was sort of wearing a jetpack and then about 25 meters from the from the surface of Mars the jetpack lowers the rover below it and the two descend until the Rovers okay I, I think we have Mars. a video of this can you be the, the, the narrator voice of this, this yes uh, drew you got the video let's check it out Okay, talk us through it. All right, so we hit the atmosphere going quite quickly, about 13,000 miles an hour. That's fast enough to burn up or melt the whole spacecraft. That would be uncool. So we wrap it in a special shell. Um, We actually steer our way through the atmosphere. This was the first for this expedition, and that's where you see those rockets going off. We're actually maneuvering in the atmosphere. And then when we've slowed down to about, oh, a little less than 1,000 miles an hour, we open up a parachute in our case, the world's largest supersonic parachute. We open it up at Mach 2. We get rid of the heat shield that protected us from from atmospheric entry, and then we let go, and we go on to rockets. Now you can see a rover with its wheels. There's six wheels, they're all sort of tucked up, and it's got this jet backpack on top of it. It's slowly descending into the Gale Crater, We're looking at the ground with a radar, and then here we do the sky cream maneuver. We lower the rover below us, drop the wheels down. Both vehicles continue to descend until Mars takes up the weight of the rover. We sense that, cut ourselves free, and fly off to a safe distance.
1: That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true.
8: Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks.
2: Welcome back to Star Talk Radio. This special time capsule episode is a mashup of your favorite moments from all of season seven. You cast your votes, and as always, it was a tight race, but the results are in. You selected The Beauty of Mathematics as one of your favorite episodes. We take an in depth look at the film, The Man Who Knew Infinity. It's a movie about the life and struggles of one of the most brilliant minds of the history of mathematics. Self-taught math genius Ramanujan. Actor Jeremy Irons and director Matt Brown joined me in my office to talk about the movie and how science has affected their own lives. I was joined in studio by co-host Eugene Merman, as well as the movie's own science consultant, mathematics professor Ken Ono. This film is about a self-taught math genius from India and an English math professor. And so I had to ask Jeremy about that special relationship
9: that he had to create in that film. Let's check it out. We tend to sort of rather generalize black and white um, in relationships, but there's a myriad of types of relationship, and this was, I think, a very heartfelt, you could say father-son. I don't know, it wasn't really that, but it was the relationship of two men who had the same dreams, who had the same passions for their subject. And that brings you really close to somebody. He describes it uh, as being the greatest, well, the only romantic period of his life. But I think that was romance. Yeah, it was a different it, it wasn't, idea of romantic. Uh, sexual romance. Yes, yeah, of, of course. It was romance for sharing a dream, and uh, a time of his life when there was color and brilliance that, that later on in life he looks back on as having been yeah. the great period of his life. So, Ken, it's an intellectual romance. It is. And
2: that's kind of what makes it a more interesting story to tell. Otherwise... The, well, that's what, really what the film is about. That's it what it's doing and why you right? have someone the, the likes of Jeremy Irons to portray. It's great, isn't it? It's great. Just yeah. hearing him talk. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
10: he seems very charming. I would like to be his friend.
2: <laughs> so what else can you tell us about uh, Ramanujan's relationship with G.H. With Hardy? Well, it's actually a very complicated relationship. And, and we, do we know about this relationship? We know from, a lot about Ramanujan's right. writings, or is it from J.H. Hardy's writings? From both. both. So, in did fact, They
10: share a
8: diary. <laughs> <laughs> no, not to share, they did not share a diary, but there, many of the letters between them still survive. So, it's actually very interesting. At first, Ramanujan needed help from his mentor, Hardy. And at first, Hardy viewed himself as the great Cambridge professor who could offer that help. But over time, Hardy began to recognize more than just Ramanujan's creativity. It's just sheer, the, the volume and, 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 and of the work that he could produce. So that relationship went from mentor-student to almost being like equal partners, teammates. And uh, it's it's, a be- it's beautifully told in this film that human element is something you can't deny, right? It's not about... So this is the
2: great transition that someone makes. And it's not exactly. always easy. And not everyone... Survives that transition. They can't. That's right. They can't make that th- th- make that change from learning to the one who then becomes the teacher. That's right. That's right. But uh, but you you turn out okay. Thank you very much.
10: <laughs> <laughs> from the limited information we have,
2: Eugene, <laughs> uh, do, do you mentor? Do comedians mentor other comedians? Very much so. Yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah. Because you. So is this someone you can claim that we can look to and say, hey, that's a Eugene prodigy.
10: Uh. Jerry Seinfeld is someone I helped out a (laughs) lot. No, but there's a lot of comics uh, that, like, uh, Patton Oswalt helped me a lot, David Cross, uh, Michael Showalter, and David Wayne, Michael Ian Black, a lot of people. And then there's comics that you bring on the road with you. So, yeah, that's very much the world of comedy is a lot of people sort of helping each other.
2: Well, Jeremy Irons plays math mentor in The Man Who Knew Infinity, and I just, I had to ask him, how did he prepare for that role? Let's find out. As an actor, when you play someone who is learned or is a scientist in ways that you are not that, what do you reach for
9: uh, to make it happen? But y- you, 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 you got to read all the books that he read. I mean, how does this work? Y- well, I, I, we had Ken Ono. yeah, And I said to Ken... Because great mathematician, I said, to Ken. Oh, as as a advisor. Yeah, that's Ken right. Owns, See, this thing. is a
2: trend line. Yeah. You know, that didn't. Ha- there was a day that didn't happen yeah. where you, people make movies and they just make stuff up. I know. Ken
7: was incredible. He he flew. I sent out an email to five different mathematicians. They all wrote back in five minutes. And Ken was on an airplane three days later. Came to England and made sure every single piece of writing in the movie was right and accurate. So, mm. and I think it gave these guys the
2: because
9: oh. they know I'm going to be tweeting about the movie and I'm going to be calling them out if they can make any. That's yeah. right. No, yeah. it's, they vouch <laughs> for it. Yeah, you've got to when you when you have to. Pretend to be able to do things that you know nothing about. You've got to have somebody saying, that is right. Believe me, that is right. What you're doing is right, that makes sense. Because you don't know, you can't tell. I mean, I know if it's if it's something emotional, but I know whether it's true or not, or whatever. I can judge that. But so it was great to have Ken on yeah. this. And and it gave me the confidence to say what I was saying, knowing that it was true and it was right.
2: So Ken, you got a good shout-out in that segment. I
9: like that very much. We (laughs) got the man himself in
2: studio.
8: (laughs) So, did did you enjoy that experience? Oh, I loved it. Um, You know, I have no experience in film, so uh, all of it was new to me, and I have a much greater appreciation now for how hard it is to make a film, produce a film, and then promote a film. It's... It's been really interesting, and, and by the way, both Dev Patel and Jeremy Irons—they were great students. So they know a lot more than they pretend in these interviews. They they really elevate. So how do you coach someone who knows no math to sound fluent in math? We spent a lot of time in rehearsals talking about math, talking about how to pronounce I, all the equations. Oh my God! We, yeah. Did talk, you
10: have to teach them Like the teach the math? Like meaning, did they actually learn? A fair amount of math, or, or none? Nah, they nah, learn. They
8: didn't learn any real mathematics from me. <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
10: well, in some movies, right. like a right. person so needs they're to learn their they okay? Actors, but in <laughs> right. some movies, like when someone's acting as like a drummer, they learn to drum. I get that Is if that it's true? a movie, a, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, because that would be better than a guy doing this. <laughs> and you're like, why does it still sound like music? <laughs> uh, but I guess with math,
2: ah, uh, yeah, no, no, no. Like, yeah, so, but they've got it. They've got to... Th- th- they're they're. they're their phrasings of math exactly. expressions
8: has to come out right. We spent hours reworking about a dozen scenes just to get the language right, get the intonation of the sentences right. Even, we even practiced at a chalkboard how to write formulas so that you would emphasize the right, right strokes in equations. Most people probably won't notice this in the film, but mathematicians who've seen the film they adore and embrace this. So part. more more likely, if you yeah. see a film where a person was not coached in how to write the that's equation. that's obvious.
2: Oh, it's completely obvious. obvious. How
10: about uh, Matt Damon in *Goodwill Hunting*? How are his equations?
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Next up, a *StarTalk* Live edition called LIGO and the Black Hole Blues. This show happened only a few months after the announcement of gravitational waves, the scientific discovery of the year, and possibly of the entire century. Although, there's still many more years of the century to come. My co-host Eugene Merman and StarTalk Live guest comedian Michael Showalter join me on stage with theoretical astrophysicist Jan Levin and LIGO astrophysicist Nergis Malvalvala to help us understand everything we could ever want to know about gravitational waves.
11: An interferometer is, is an optical device where you take a laser beam, and you kind of split it in two p- paths. Nice. And the light <laughs> travels along two paths, <laughs> and it comes back. Nice. And then it interferes.
2: You can save your emotions for after she
11: finishes.
10: <laughs> so you start with a laser, you break it up, you get them back together. Yep. And then you're like, now I get how gravity
11: works. But (laughs) along the way, what happened, when you broke the two laser beams apart, if they travel different distances, then when they come back together, they act a little funny. They're a bit darker or a bit brighter.
10: And why do they travel a different distance?
11: Because the gravitational wave came through the detector. Aha! I caught you!
10: (laughs) (laughs) uh, Now I get it. Right, so what you have... So your two
2: beams are otherwise identically the same length. Yes. Now now a gravity wave washes across the detector and makes the length of one different from the length of the other.
10: Because it went into the future.
2: And, <laughs> and then you can recombine the waves, and now you have like a crest adding to a trough of these waves and they interfere with one another and you can measure this.
11: We can measure that and we can measure not just if crests line up with crests or crests line up with troughs, but lots of variations in between. So is it perfectly dark because troughs and troughs lined up or is it perfectly bright or something in between? And that's how we make the measurement. We actually use the laser beam along one arm as a kind of a reference for measuring the light travel time along the other arm. You just compare how long did the light take along this arm compared to the light along the perpendicular arm. Now you've got arm. two of
2: these facilities. Mm-hmm. Why?
11: Well, that's really important uh, because the... And the one is
2: in Louisiana, one is in Washington State. State.
11: Yep, yes. Yeah. so they're about 3,000 kilometers apart. And then now, Convert
2: that to miles here, for because we're, we're oh, Americans wow. here. Eight,
11: oh. <laughs> Eight. Eight miles.
2: <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's about, it's about 2,000 miles yeah? there are, yes,
11: thereabouts okay. yeah. you say 2,000, so, okay <laughs> yeah. right. so, so why do we need two of them in fact there's actually an, a European detector in, in Italy as well called Virgo and why do we need so many so a couple of things one is the signals are are, are very weak and so how does this, can I say how the detector works? Yeah. yeah. Bip, I, bip. You know, do you want to know how the detector works? <laughs> okay. Okay. They do so. get up and leave now. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, stop, I'll stop. Okay,
2: as they start okay. going for the exit. Yeah, we'd love to know how it works. Yeah.
11: So the way it actually works is that the gravitational wave comes through the detector, it actually changes the distance between the laser and a mirror. That ha- ha- In our case, in the case of LIGO, the U.S. detectors, the mirrors in the lasers are separated by four kilometers, so two and a half miles, okay? And and what happens then is that our job then is simply to measure the change in distance between the laser and the mirror when the gravitational wave goes by compared to when it's not there. And now the problem is that the motion of these mirrors uh, compared to the laser distance is tiny. The gravitational wave is really, really, really weak. And so the motion we're trying to measure over those 2.5 miles is smaller than 1,000th the size of a proton, okay? So it's a very small number. It's 10 to the minus 18 meters for those of you who think in, 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 in those kinds of numbers. <laughs> but really what you have to think about is that you start off with an atom. And you, you know, you get to something that's a thousand times smaller than the typical size of an atom. You have its nucleus in the center, a proton. Proton, and now we're thinking of something that's a thousand times smaller than the centra- central nucleus of an atom. So and it's a you small number. That. We measured that. So you claim? <laughs> yes.
7: With, did you me- measure it with like one of those rulers you get at Staples? <laughs> yes.
11: <so laughs> and
7: then at the end. They put a ruler. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: The little wooden ruler the... No, it's more like
10: one of the wheels that you use to measure like more like in the street.
11: <laughs> no, we measured that using the travel time of the laser. That's why the laser I is see. so important. I see. Okay, but okay. you have
2: two facilities. Yes,
10: yeah, so so
11: so why? Because this effect is so small. Now we're trying to measure these tiny motions of mirrors and everything on our planet wants to move those mirrors by more than this passing gravity I remember wave. when I
2: visited one of the facilities you come near the the, the beam it says drive really slowly towards the facility because anything is going to jiggle shake and bake yeah, your absolutely, experiment absolutely
11: and so that's so how do you know
2: you didn't detect me driving into the facility
11: that's why yeah. we have two because there's not two of you at you know 3,000 kilometers apart. But by the same time. How do you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> or how do you
10: know that there isn't another car with another yeah. person?
11: So, so the way that you know is that the, the detectors the two observa- at the two observatories are instrumented with all kinds of other instrumentation, like seismometers that would measure you going by. And so we take those, we can remove those events from our signals. And now what happens, So think about the black holes we did detect. What we saw was a signal that arrived in our Louisiana detector first, and then seven milliseconds later, that same set of wiggles and bumps, that same signal... So seven
2: thousandths of a second.
11: Yes, seven thousandths of a second later, it arrives at our Washington detector. And that told us something very important. It told us that the wave was coming in from the south, traveled through the Louisiana detector, and then continued on its way. And seven milliseconds later, which is about the light travel time, you know, these waves also go at the speed of light. And it registered in the the Washington detector. So it's not like
2: a thing moving through the air. It is the rippling of the fabric of space time, shaking and baking Earth, being felt by one detector seven milliseconds after the other.
11: Yes. That was, that was what it was. And that's what those two detectors are <laughs> for.
7: Oh. And when, when you turned on the machine and you heard the signal and, and you were like, that's the real signal, did you guys then have a party? <laughs> <laughs>
11: yeah, so when, you know... In part because of the history of false starts in the field, many of us also have this, the psychology of oh no, that can't be real. So we looked at this beautiful signal and we were trying to talk ourselves out of it. But eventually, after we did an- enough testing, it, w- it was real, and then we yes, rea- we did You it a wasn't party. me
3: driving down the street. What, that's yeah. right. Did everyone get drunk at the party? <laughs> but, but,
11: um,
10: did you all have to come home drunk and go like, no reason? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Because <laughs> the discovery paper has a thousand people on it. Yeah. How a thousand people going to keep it's a, a secret? Huge party. <laughs> they, we did pretty
11: well, not you, perfectly, but you did damn well. well. I'm yeah. there, and
2: they're all just smiling ear to ear, and nobody yeah. told me a damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Star Talk. Today, we're reaching back into the Season 7 archives to listen to some of your favorite moments, according to your votes. One of your favorite conversations this season was with the principal investigator of the New Horizons mission to Pluto, Alan Stern, a longtime friend and colleague. In fact, I knew him back when, I mean, when he was a graduate student at the University of Texas. He thinks Pluto should be a planet, and well... You know what I think about that. So this episode, we chat about the demotion of everyone's favorite ex-planet, Pluto, and what the New Horizons mission has unveiled. I'm joined in studio by co-host Chuck Nice and planetary scientist David Grinspoon, both voted among your favorite StarTalk guests. Other than Pluto's surface as an object... Has it changed anybody's notions of things dynamically? It's a thing orbiting the sun. Well, with
4: the exception of Neil Tyson, it's convinced <laughs> most people that it's a planet. <laughs> okay, I'm pummeling him now. I'm giving him a piggy on his thing. <laughs> and then when people find out that if you drove around the circumference of Pluto, it's as far as from Manhattan to Moscow, they said, I didn't know it was that big.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say, whether or not anyone calls it a planet, I think I learned this word in the Carl Saganian universe, where... We get to call it a world. And a world has a certain intimacy to it, a a conversational intimacy, because it tells you that it's a place. Maybe we'll go visit it one day. It's interesting to think about and to explore. And maybe that's what matters here. Is it a world? The moons of Jupiter are worlds. They're planets. (laughs) Alan Stern has planet on the brain.
4: Yeah, well, you know, it's important. My field is called planetary science, so I think it's Mm -hmm. important that we, as practitioners, understand what the central objects in our field are and where pluto falls in that is secondary to just having a basic logical consistent understanding of what are planets and there's two ways to go at it you can go at it scientifically and scientifically uh the geophysical planet definition says that when objects are big enough to be round Self-gravity. Gravity gravity, Gravity shapes it. Mm -hmm. And they're not so big that their central temperature causes them to ignite in fusion. Anything in between, which is from about a tenth of Pluto's size up to about ten times Jupiter's mass will be called a planet. It's very simple. Or you could use the Star Trek test. You know, when the viewfinder comes on, the public knows in about a half a second what they're orbiting. It's Mm -hmm. a spaceship, it's an asteroid, it's a comet or a planet. Pluto passes by either test, but really it's really about we as scientists being able to order things into boxes so that we can categorize so it's our problem in a logical way. It's not Pluto's problem, it's our problem. Well Pluto's an inanimate object. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but of course,
2: whatever is your concern about the legitimacy of the vote, our community voted in two thousand and
4: six for the new classification. Actually, I, I don't believe Actually not so. 4% of the International Astronomical Union was there. 4% voted. It was almost 50-50. And so about 2% voted each way, and it went the other way. On a vote made up of non-experts called astronomers, not planetary scientists, I'd like to redo that vote. Okay, so now- And so really get the experts But in fine, there. what I'm saying is,
2: I don't think anything I did had anything to do with that vote.
4: So- And that's the vote that sets the language. So so seven years ahead of that, running a very prominent exhibit at the American Museum of Natural History, you wanted to take Pluto and the small planets like it off the list of planets. Didn't you do that? No, not really. No, we never had a list of planets. That's the thing.
2: We never said Pluto wasn't a planet. We just grouped it with the Kuiper Belt. So if I go over to AMH today, I won't find any numbers like eight. Never. There was never the number eight. I was misunderstood.
10: <laughs> I'm having the best the press, time.
2: <laughs> the press misunderstood me, and and my then my team who who did this. So Pluto's a planet. So no, we did. The institution did not commit to whether it was I'm asking Neil. <laughs> uh, I think. This is where you get to make I some think the disservice. Neil. Let me let me at least meet you halfway. I think if dwarf planet is a Category of planet. Like I have s- no problem with that. What happened was people thought the dwarf planet meant is not a planet anymore. And I agree and that's where I can meet you somewhere. Good. So on, I on the I island. like that.
4: It dwarf planet is a category of planet. A just like dwarf planet. stars, the sun is a dwarf star. Would yeah, yeah, anybody it's deny it's a star?
2: Yeah, it's a dwarf star. Most people don't know
4: it's a dwarf star, but it's, but a it's dwarf. true. Yeah. 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 That's pretty good, Neil.
2: Oh, we're shaking hands.
4: Uh-oh. On camera. Because Neil just said
2: <laughs> dwarf planets are planets. <laughs> We can edit, edit that out. You guys edit that out you later. You
1: probably will. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> guys, I told you to edit that out. Why is it still in there? Oh, my God. <laughs> Let me just say, that is a deeply wounded man you're talking to right there. I mean, he, is, he just went Taylor Swift on you. He was uh... just like, we are never getting back together, Neil. Never.
2: <laughs> it's a planet, damn it. It's a planet. So, David, what's your take on all this?
8: Well, you know, you heard me earlier in this conversation use the word planet, and that's almost my reflex. Like, I wasn't trying to be provocative or make a point then. It's honestly how I think of it. And and I do understand how people that are concerned with thinking about orbits and classification of gravitational influence, you know, might put dwarf planets like Pluto in, in sort of their own category mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but as a planetary scientist you know I, I go to meetings where we talk about planetary geology and processes of planetary atmospheres and when we're doing that and we're doing comparative planetology we do use the word planet often when we talk about pluto we're saying well th- you know this planet has a has a crater population that shows that this area is young and people don't stand up and go wait you know they correct and go no you mean yeah. dwarf planet you that's because
1: they've all been brainwashed
8: that's <laughs> <Maybe>. exactly <laughs>
1: Another
2: one of your favorite episodes discussed the physics and fantasy of time travel. Professor Michio Kaku, a longtime friend and colleague, and co-host Chuck Nice joined me under the Hayden Sphere of the Hayden Planetarium to help us grasp the concepts. This show featured my interview with Back to the Future actor Christopher Lloyd, the Doc, and Doctor Who star Michelle Gomez, both of whom portray well-loved time-traveling characters in pop culture. Does the prospect of time travel intrigue you?
12: Yes, absolutely. How,
2: how long? Your whole life? We, oh, we,
12: from, from the moment I think my first thought would have been obsessed about... Really? ...being somewhere else. And it's only until now that I'm starting to realise that right here, right now, in this moment, right in this moment, everything's just fine and perfect. But that's taken me a few years to get there.
2: So your timeline was a work in progress. Oh, yes. until this moment.
12: Yes, I had to be beaten into me <laughs> into submission. My very sort of humanness has had to be beaten into me throughout the years.
2: Well, it's true for anyone we are the sum of everything we've experienced. Yes. Right? And but not everyone puts it together no. into a new entity, consciousness, a new consciousness. Yeah. A new consciousness. Wow, man, you guys got really philosophical. Well, I'm just saying, you know, if you got to go there, you got to go there. Sometimes <laughs> the moment requires it of you. Yeah. So, Michio,
13: what is this, if, if there's time travel, what does that say about free will? It means perhaps there is no such thing as free will. Uh, We have to. No one wants to believe that, right? However, you know, I do. uh, My life is a wreck. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a quantum physicist, and in quantum mechanics, there is uncertainty, and uncertainty means that we're not robots. We're not. By the way, this is not uncertainty the way we normally use that word. This is the uncertainty in position and velocity of electrons. But since we are made of electrons, it means that there's uncertainty with regards to who we are. We exist in multiple states at the same time. And in some sense, you can be two places at the same time. So for us quantum physicists, having multiple universes is commonplace. Does it, If you're going to give yourself multiple universes,
2: then I do have free will. There's a universe where some happen. I say I don't want to do that. I don't want that to happen. Right.
13: Let me go change that, and then I birth another universe where I can do something different. That's right. If there is uncertainty, then there are parallel universes, different time streams, and that's that resolves all the paradoxes of time travel, and it means that free will can exist because the time the timeline can fork into many roads.
1: So each one of those timelines actually represents a different reaction to a choice if you were this person. So I get up and I went one way to work as opposed to another way to work. I've created
13: a different M- multiverse by That's doing right. that? We create multiple universes simply by making decisions. Right. Whether we wake up in the morning or sleep another hour in bed, uh, we bifurcate. We split in half. And so for us, the time travel paradoxes are very easy to, to resolve because we work with parallel universes every time we work with a transistor. The, uh, the Internet. The Internet is based on parallel universes. And some people don't like it, but hey, get used to it. <laughs> Michel,
2: I think you're invoking parallel universes to make everything you say
13: work out okay. Hey, I think he's got it. <laughs> That's exactly right. We believe in a unification of all physical law. And we think that quantum mechanics is the framework that even unites Einstein's theory to, relative, uh, to quantum mechanics. And the highest version of quantum mechanics is string theory. Hmm. So so I worry
2: that you know you can make another universe rather than commit yourself to this one and make it better. Ooh, can I dodge that question? (laughs) 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 All right, so before we bring this to a close, you know we can't do it without, like, a video visit from... Nine times in the city Yes Bill Nye the science guy Good friend and buddy And now you know He's a resident of New York now I finally got him to live here He finally got him here Now he runs around town Doing cool stuff And I'm still here Stuck in this chair (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) So I'm told he got his hands On an actual DeLorean That was used in the movie Let's check this out
12: Look out Is time travel possible? No, probably not. Be cool though. You could go back in time and change history. Maybe you could go back to the Titanic and convince the captain to slow down. Or maybe just go back to last weekend and stop yourself from having one more tequila shot. Or maybe you could send a colleague back in time have sex with a waitress who turns out to be your own mother, like in the Terminator series, you know, to, to prevent worldwide nuclear war. That'd be cool. Science fiction is replete with time travel stories. But I think for Neil and me, our favorite's gotta be the Back to the Future series. That's where Doc Brown turns a DeLorean sports car into a time machine. What if you could travel through time? Great Scott! Suppose everything, everyone you know and love were actually part of someone else's time travel adventure. That would mean that you and I don't even exist. And as I finish this Nigh in the city segment, everything would just disappear. disappear. That would be weird.
2: You've been listening to Star Talk Radio, and I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your host and your personal astrophysicist. Join us next time for part two of our time capsule show, where we relive your favorite cosmic query moments of our seventh season, That's all for now, and as always, I bid you to keep looking up.
5: Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me, and that's the miracle.